is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 26. I got a text this week from uh, someone not in our church who uh, lives far away and uh, she sent me a text and said, man, thank you for, for Sunday's message. I had been thinking in my heart that I wanted to turn my attention towards Resurrection Sunday, and, and the message really helped me. And uh, so if you happen to be our guest for the first time this morning, haven't been in here in a while, we're on the road to resurrection, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I desired for us to prepare our hearts for next Sunday in, in some way, to begin turning our attention towards uh, which is the greatest Sunday for us, the day we commemorate that Jesus rose from the dead. Though just a reminder, every Sunday is that for us, right? Because we meet on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on, on Sunday. But last week, the road to resurrection led through Jerusalem, through the city, where Jesus offered himself to Israel as their Messiah King. At least that's my opinion. He was offering themselves, offering himself, excuse me, to them as uh, their King. And in response, the leadership, they rejected the Lord Jesus. They denied him. I thought Michael's point last week was so well taken, so poignant, where he talked about this is the second time they rejected God's offer to be their king. The first one in the Old Testament where he said, this is a theodicy, a theocracy, excuse me. I am, I, am, I am your king. You don't need an earthly king. You don't need a human king. I'm your king. But they said, no, we want a human king. And so he gave them one, and now God has become human. God has taken on our humanity, and he comes in, and Jesus riding in on that donkey, offering himself to them as their, their earthly, or excuse me, their human king, their human God king, right? And yet they reject him again. I thought that was such a great, great point. Lots of stuff is going to happen in this, this week, this last week of Jesus' life between when he enters the city and, and, uh, and his crucifixion. Uh, he is going to cleanse the temple there in Jerusalem for a second time in three years. He's going to cast out the money changers and the thieves. Some of his greatest discourses are going to take place this week where he teaches, for instance, uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches. That's going to take place this week. Lots of Neat discourses from Jesus are going to take place this particular week. Um, I, I imagine that the week went, went, went by fast for Jesus as he knows what's coming. I'm pretty sure it went by quickly for him. Thursday night is really loaded. Thursday's a loaded night, a loaded day. It's going to be the time where he washes his disciples' feet. It's going to be where he transforms the Passover meal, gives us the Lord's Supper that night. And he does an awful lot of teaching in the book of John, you know, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Those are all teachings that Thursday night. At some point, they leave what we call the upper room and, uh, and the city, actually. Matthew 26, verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, most likely after dark. It's a full moon that night, and uh, so we can surmise, I imagine, if it's not raining, I don't think we read anything about rain or, or storms or anything, so it's a full moon that night. Uh, it's probably got a lot of ambient light from, uh, from the moon, but they head out to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
It seems that on the way to the garden, Jesus gives them some distressing news. Matthew 26, verse 31. Tonight, all of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I've always envisioned Jesus walking with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives. And as he's walking, he's still teaching. He's still talking to them. And I believe that this would have been something he would have talked to them as he's walking along. Verse 30, uh, 32, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Peter, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Why go to the Garden of Gethsemane that night? Why did the road to resurrection, to his resurrection, why would it lead through the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus came to the city, I believe, to present himself uh, to Israel as their king. And I think he went to the garden that night to prepare himself for all that lay ahead in the day to come, or the, the ne that night even in the next day. I think he went there to prepare him, himself. And so Gethsemane, I'm going to suggest to you this uh, this morning was a place of preparation for Jesus. But even as it was a place of preparation, it was a place of many other things too that actually contributed to that preparation. So let's see what they are. First, and maybe foremost, it was a place of prayer. Verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and told his disciples, sit here for a while, I go over there while I go over there to pray. I, I believe this is the primary reason Jesus went to prepare himself in Gethsemane. He, he needed to pray. Now, to state the obvious, prayer is just communication with God. And, and so Jesus needed to talk to God that night. He needed to talk to his father about everything his heart was feeling, everything that was going on in his mind, everything that was going on in, in his, you know, in his, in his soul, in his, in, his, in, inner, in his inner person. The garden was that place of communication. The garden was, along with a place of prayer, it was a place of retreat. Verse 36 again, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, or told the disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. And taking along Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began uh, to be sorrowful and, trouble and troubled, and he said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed. The garden was a place of solitude. It was a, a place of getting alone with God, with God. He needed the disciples to be near him. He wanted them to be near him, but he separated himself from the group of eight, and then he separated himself from the group of three. Why he divided himself into those groups, you know, I, I really don't know, other than the fact that, that the garden was going to be a place of retreat for him, a place where he would get alone with God. Getting alone and retreating to talk to God was not, this is not the first time Jesus did this. This seems to have been the habit of his life. You remember in Mark's gospel, early on, chapter 1, verse 35, the disciples early in the morning are looking for Jesus. Very, here, let me read you the verse. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, got up and went out and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Now, I told you that that verse right there just I mean, it constantly prods me and, and, and tells me, Jimmy, you need to have alone time with God because the Son of God, the Son of Man, 
needed his alone time with God. And the garden was that place of retreat, place of prayer, place of retreat. The garden was also a place of agony. 37, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. The road to the resurrection of Jesus would lead through a garden of anguish and a garden of pain. I said just a few moments ago in, in when we were starting the gathering that this is kind of a sober, painful message in some ways, and I, I still want joy to fall upon us. But Jesus at this moment on the road to the resurrection is grieved to the point of death. In Luke's account of this, it tells us that Jesus was in such agony that as he prayed, he began to bleed. Luke 22, verse 44, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Leave it to Dr. Luke to give us this medical note about Jesus, that he was, I mean, if you'd have seen him, and again, there wasn't much light, but if you'd have seen him, his, his, he would have been sweating, but it would have looked like he was bleeding from all of his pores. Hematidrosis is a rare condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood. When it does occur, it happens under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Acute fear and intense mental contemplation are the most frequent causes, as reported in six cases in men condemned to execution. Another case occurred when a woman was afraid she was going to be raped. Another was a case of fear in a storm while sailing. And still another case, the probable cause of hematidrosis was chronic stress. And though there have been other causes for this occurrence, it seems mostly to be brought on by extreme stress or fear, such as facing death, torture, or severe ongoing abuse. It's probably the origin of the term sweating blood, meaning great effort, uh, uh, great effort or great stress. Now, what caused Jesus' capillaries to burst that night while he's praying? Well, uh, Jesus was in agony, he says, to the point he was afraid of death. What, 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 what was Jesus afraid that night? Was he afraid of dying? Some people have said, well, he was afraid that he'd die prematurely in the garden and, and not on the cross. I, I don't buy that. Was he afraid of dying? And I guess that would depend on our view of fear, right? Because if we believe that, that fear is sin, then surely he wasn't afraid of dying, right? If we think fear in itself is a sin. I'm, I'm not so sure that I agree with that. I don't think fear in itself is, is, is a sin. I think fear is an emotion that comes upon us. When the Bible says don't fear, I think what God is saying is don't let the emotion of fear control your life so that you're bound by it or affected by it or negatively led by it. Don't let fear control you. But emotions are emotions and they come, with the, they come upon us because we're human. And, and so I, you know, I kind of think Jesus may have been afraid, but without sin, okay? If you believe that Jesus, that you, you believe that all fear is sin, then by all means, he, he wasn't afraid. That, that wasn't the cause of this. And I don't know what the cause of this was, what, what brought this, this thing that's very rare, what happened to him. But, but this thing, I, I want to tell you what I do know. Here's what I do know for sure, right? Number one, he was in some kind of agony, wasn't he? That the capillaries in his blood would burst, I mean, in his, in his skin would burst and, and and they, they would join the blood with his sweat. I mean, he was in some sort of pain, some sort of hard stress, which, let's backtrack, which is why he retreated 
to be alone with God in the garden to tell him about what's going on in his heart. And the second thing, well, I just said the second thing. The second thing is that the pain drove him to the garden. The pain drove him to this place where he would meet with God. Let's go on. The garden was a place of surrender. No matter how Jesus was feeling or what he was experiencing, the garden was a crucible of obedience. It was a place where he had to surrender to the Lord. Verse 39. Going a little further or farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now I can imagine that Jesus prayed much more than just that sentence. Remember, Jesus told us that vain repetition, just repeating the same phrase over and over and over again, he said, that's not how we pray. So he's going to pray for, it seems like an hour. So I'm sure his prayers were much, much deeper than just this. But the, the gospel writers kind of distill his prayer down to this. God, if there's any other way, can this cup pass away from me? Now, people spiritualize the cup. What was the cup that Jesus was asking to, to be taken away from him? Some say it's the cup of the wrath of God. I think I've probably even taught that. Others say that the, the cup is the death that he's about to endure. And I would say that too. I, I would say really that both of those things are, are a distinction without a difference, right? The cup is the wrath of God. The cup is the death that Jesus would go through. They're, they're the same, right? The wrath of God and the death of Jesus. I mean, he's dying at the wrath of God for our sin, the wages of sin is death. I mean, there's no distinction there. Death, destruction, the wages of sin. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross. And I believe, I believe, and I may be wrong, but I believe that Jesus is saying, God, is there another way? Do, do I have to die? And maybe he's not even asking that he doesn't have to die. Maybe he's asking, God, do I have to die like this? Do I have to die so painfully? I mean, the cross was such a painful death. Do I have to die like that? Do I have to die hanging naked on a cross? I mean, I have to stay, do I have to lay, hang there in my nakedness? Because see, we cover, we cover the nakedness of Jesus in all our pictures and drawings, but from what I understand, they hung him naked in their shame, right? Do I have, maybe, he's, maybe he's saying that, okay? Um, what, an what an example for us, though, because this is the significant, the significant part of his prayer is this. But not my will, but yours be done. God, please, is there, is there another way, but not what I want, but what you want? What an example for us, praying from our hearts, saying, God, this is what I desire, but I'm couching it, and I'm willing to say, God, but whatever you think is best, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to do, this is what I want to do, but whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do, and that's what I will do. And so here in the garden, it was a night of surrender for the Lord Jesus. Most of us, and maybe I'm projecting myself on you, but most of us don't pray like this. Most of us pray, we want what we want, Lord. And uh, we, we, he's prom you've promised it to us. We're going to claim it. We should pray like Jesus. Whatever we're claiming, whatever we're praying for, it always needs to be bedded in the bedrock of our surrender to the Lord. This is what I want, but I'm surrendered to you. The garden was a place of patience and understanding, verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, Jesus didn't ask them for much. What, what did he ask them for? 
One hour. Hey, guys, remember this is Peter, James, and John. The other eight are further away. I don't think this conversation is with them. I think it's with the three. Hey, I asked you guys over here because I kind of wanted you to stay awake with me. And he addresses Peter, but it's, it's indirectly addressed at all three of them. He says, guys, couldn't you stay awake for me uh, just one hour? I just, this thought just came to me. Maybe he addresses it to Peter, because what did Peter just say on the road a little while earlier? Remember that? Hey, man, everybody else may, I'll die for you. And maybe he's addressing Peter to make a point. Peter, can't you even stay awake with me one hour? But, but I love this exchange. I really do. I always have. I always, you know what I love about it? And what struck me about it is the mercy and compassion and, and just the grace of Jesus in this particular event. Um, do you think Jesus was hurt when he got there and found him asleep? I think so. I mean, Jesus is God, but he's human. He has our emotions. And unless we want to say that our emotions in themselves are sinful, and, and I'm not, you know, I think it's what we do with our emotions that makes them sin or can make them sin for us. But I, I believe he's probably hurt by the fact that they could not and did not stay awake with him for, for just an hour. His friends let him down. Do you remember how that's felt? But he doesn't bash them. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't blame them. In fact, he's very understanding. He says, man, I know in your heart, guys, you really want to stay awake. But I know you just can't. Last week, my brother Alan calls me. He's on his way to Quantico to, uh, to uh, officiate or help in a funeral. And he says, Jimmy, I can't stay awake. He says, I'm scaring myself. I got the window open. I got the music cranked up, but it's not helping. I'm scaring myself. And you're, anybody been there? I mean, I've been there before. It's scary. And you think opening the window and sticking your head out the window is going to keep you awake. And maybe it does for a second or two, but you pull your head back in and it's right back again. And, and, and I think Jesus is saying, I get it, guys. That's how it is for you. You can't stay awake. By the way, when Al and I finished talking about 30 minutes later, he said, good, I'm, I'm going to wake now. So I kept him alive. Uh, the garden was a place of persistence. Look at verse 42. Again, a second time. He went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, there will, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. There's really a lot about prayer. I've told you this so many times I, that I don't really understand exactly the dynamics of prayer. Uh, why does God answer yes over here and no over here? And the situations seem exactly the same. You ever wondered that? I mean, I've wondered that, Right. Um, if, if 10 godly people, I think I asked you guys this question not too long ago. If 10, if 10 godly people pray, is that more powerful with God than one godly person praying over here? I mean, the Bible never says, never answers that. And if that is true, that 10 godly people praying for something make God or, or seem to obligate more God answering yes, then why in the world didn't God save Nabil Qureshi from his cancer? Because I think the whole evangelical world was praying for Nabil Qureshi to be healed. Right? So all that to say, and, and it's never negative, I'm not trying to be negative, I'm just trying to say, I just don't understand exactly how prayer works, but I know that prayer, prayer, prayer is talking to God, he's listening and he cares, and prayer does something in my heart, I get all that. What part does persistence in prayer play? Did, did you notice that Jesus goes back a second time after being an hour of praying? He goes back, and did you notice what he prays? What does he pray the second time? Same thing he prayed the first time. 
Same thing. He's persisting in prayer. Jesus told us a parable when he was, you know, when he was three years ministering. Remember the parable about the, about the wicked judge and the old woman that goes to him and just keeps badgering and badgering him and badgering. And then Jesus says, and what does the judge do? He gives in because this woman's going to kill me. She keeps coming so much. And then Jesus says, you know, your father in heaven's not like that judge. He doesn't have to be badgered, you know. He knows what you need. And then, but then he makes this application. Therefore, persist in prayer. Be persistent in prayer. For a second hour, Jesus asked this. And again, there's that surrender at the end of it. But God, your will be done. Again, he finds the disciples sleeping. And this time it doesn't seem he wakes them up. Verse 44 after leaving them, he went again a third time and prayed, saying the same thing once more. You know, so Jesus is persisting in prayer. Was God telling him no each time? And Jesus is going back. I know you said no the first time, but I'm coming back again to see if you might say yes. And I, I know you said no once, twice. I'm coming back a third time. Or, or was it that Jesus didn't have a sense of what God's answer was? And that's why he kept answering. I don't have an answer to those things. I don't have an answer to those things. I, I was going to stick just to Matthew, but I just had to throw this one in. I just felt like I couldn't leave it out. It's from Luke. It's not in Matthew. But the garden was a place of assistance as well. Luke 22, verse 43. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Somewhere in the midst of this praying... God sent an angel. The disciples dropped the help ball, and they fell asleep. But God didn't drop the help ball. God sent an angel or angels to strengthen Jesus. Now listen, this is going to be funny. Not ha-ha, but funny. He sends the angel to minister to Jesus. You know the verse about Jesus sweating blood in his prayers? It comes after the angel helping him. So what that means is that though the angel was there to help him, and the angel was helping him in some way, the agony that Jesus bore that night was something only Jesus could bear. You know, when Shep died, you guys helped me. I've told you this numerous times in the last four years, but you strengthened me. You carried my grief. You divided my grief. I tell you, I don't, I don't know that my family would have made it without you. It was your, your love for us was so incredible in helping, helping me carry that. But you know what? Y'all didn't make it go away. You didn't relieve me of it. It didn't go away. Grief was there. That's probably a poor analogy, but it sounded good to me when I, in, my, in my heart I'm thinking about this. The, that, those angels must have strengthened Jesus and helped him carry that load, but they could not take it away. The garden was a place of determination. I don't doubt that Jesus was resolute but there's just something about the garden that punctuated his determination. In verse 45, he came to disciples, found them sleeping yet again, and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. God has said no to his request three times. Jesus gets up and he says, I am determined to do what God has called me to do. I am going to surrender to these men who are going to turn me over to the Romans to be killed. Now, how he determined that the, that the will of God, um, how he determined at this point that, that this is the will of God, and he's not going to ask anymore, you know, you know I'm not sure. I'll, I'll comment on that more. But let me ask you this. Are you determined to do the will of God 
in your life, no matter what the cost to you is, no matter how much you don't want to do it, how much you want to do something else, how much you want to follow a different path, are you, are you determined to do the will of God in your life like Jesus is here? I mean, I think that's a takeaway for us. Let's go on. The garden was a place of betrayal. Verse 46. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and the elders of the, of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Again, here's just a, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but do you think Jesus loved Judas? It was rhetorical, but thank you. Yeah, I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you that I think Jesus loved Judas. And I don't mean like Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, I think Jesus loved Judas in his humanity like a friend. You may say, well, no, he just picked him because he knew he was going to be betraying him and he needed somebody to betray him and he really didn't love Judas. I don't think you're right. And I think it would have broke Jesus' heart that night. I mean, I think there's already an acceptance of it. I mean, it's earlier in the evening that Jesus said to him, Jesus, go do what you're going to do. And he left. But it, it, I'm sure it broke Jesus' heart that night that, that Judas betrayed him. And it was a full moon. Remember that? There's ambient light. But it's still going to be dark. And so they've arranged so that there'd be no mistake who Jesus was. Judas was going to betray Jesus, not by saying that's him and pointing at him, but by actually going up and kissing him on the cheek so there would be no doubt that's Jesus. That's the guy you want to arrest. And he's going to betray him with a kiss. Matthew doesn't say it. One of the other gospels does. But Jesus says, Judas, are you going to betray me with a kiss? I mean, that's what friends do. Are you going to betray me with a kiss? Have you ever been betrayed by a, by a friend? You know, I think uh, y'all might think pastors have thick skin, and I think you have to have somewhat of thick skin, or you have to have, I don't know, I feel like God always graced me. I don't call it a thick skin, but just I know how flawed I am. I know how flawed you are, so I've never really held it against anyone. But some of my better friends in this church family, you know, one left. I didn't know there was a big problem. I called, and said, hey, man, how are you doing? And this is what I got. Jimmy, I have nothing to do with you. Click and hung up. Another friend left seeking to burn our church down when he left. I don't mean metaphorically. I mean, I don't mean that literally. I mean that metaphorically. He wasn't trying to burn the building down, but he was trying to destroy the family with words and, and writings and letters and, and all. I have another friend who, when I went up to him one day, just so excited to see him, said, I don't want to be here. I'm only here because my wife is making me be here. I've known betrayal, but I'm not alone. I may, may have somehow, and it was never my intention, I may have betrayed you at some point. I know betrayal hurts. It hurts, and it hurt Jesus uh, that night. And the garden was a place of agony because of what was going to transpire. But there was hurt here because his friend, Judas, was betraying him. The garden would be a place of Jesus, be the place of Jesus' arrest. Verse 50. Friend, Jesus asked him, have you come? Uh, friend, Jesus asked him, why have you come? And then they came up and took hold of Jesus and arrested him. Early in the week, Judas had betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. 
30 pieces of silver, that would have been, they did the math trying to figure out, you know, a, a soldier's salary then, a soldier's salary now. They said it's between $90 and $3,000 in today's currency. Judas betrayed Jesus for as little as 90, for as much as 3,000, but really neither one of those numbers seem all that big to me, you know. They betrayed him, he betrayed him, he was arrested like a common criminal. Uh, just a couple more things and then, and then we'll wrap this up. The garden would be a place of instruction, verse 51. At that moment, one of, the, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand, drew a sword, struck the high priest's servant uh, and cut off his ear. And Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Once a teacher, always a teacher, Danny. Jesus saw a teachable moment, and so he's going to teach, just like he did on the cross. And I'm not trying to say it's just about teaching, but on the cross he taught us to forgive one another. Remember he taught, he said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. That was, his, that was I think, about, as much about us and those of us who follow him. That's a word for us as much as it was for, for, the, for them, but... Matthew doesn't say it. It's Peter that cuts off his ear. Jesus heals him in that moment. But Jesus teaches two things. One, he teaches them that violence begets violence. That's what he says. All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, put your sword away. Live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That's kind of the, the statement the, that came out of that, that, that. What do we call those? The idioms that we use today, right? Uh, the Proverbs, if you would. And the proverb basically means this. A, a person who lives a violent life is most likely going to die a violent death. That's kind of what that proverb means. Those who practice violence will, will most likely die by violence. Now, some believe that Jesus is instructing us to absolute pacifism. I mean, we don't have time for that. I don't think they're right. But I think Martin Luther King may capture why Jesus says this to Peter. And if I could just quote him and just leave it at that. And, uh, and just leave it at that. Here's what Martin Luther said. Returning hate for hate, Martin Luther King said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And if I was to try to encapsulate what I think Jesus was trying to tell Peter that night, I, I think that was it. But the second thing he taught them was that nobody was taking his life, he was giving it. He said, man, don't you know, I could, call, I could ask my father, and this is, I don't understand this, I'll just be honest. I don't understand this, but he says, don't you know I could call for 12 legions of angels? A legion was 6,000 times 12, 72,000 angels. I could call for 72,000 angels now, my father would send them to me. How does that fit with... How does that fit with Father? Is there any other way for this, this cup to pass away? You know, I, I don't know how that fits. But I think Jesus was teaching them. Jesus was teaching them. I could call for 72,000 angels and God the Father would send them. Nobody's taking my life, guys. This isn't happening by accident. This isn't happening because I can't stop it. This is happening because... I'm giving myself like the lamb being led for slaughter of Isaiah 53. I am letting myself go. And finally, the garden was a place of obedience. 
At the beginning, Jesus prayed, Father, is there any other way? He said he would submit. He would say, but, but I want what you want. I want what's best. I want what you want for me. That's what he would say. Verse 55, at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you did not arrest me. But all this has happened so the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Luke adds that he said to them, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. You can't do it in the light, guys. You come out here in the middle of the night to, uh, to arrest me. And he, once again, he repeats, this is happening because this is what God has ordained. This is what God has desired to have. And this is what God is bringing about. And, 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 and am I going to stop this? No, I'm not going to stop what God is bringing about. The disciples fled, but Jesus obeyed. And he could have run. He could have hid. He could have tried to get in the pandemonium of everybody running. He could have tried to run. He didn't run. He didn't flinch. He stayed the course. So from this stop on the road to the resurrection, I have three takeaways for us this morning. And here they are. This is to challenge me. It's to challenge you. Uh, I found them a challenge just writing them down. Here's the first one. And they're quick. When you and I are facing a crisis in our life, the thing we need to do is we need to pull away and we need to pray. We need to pull away and we need to seek God. In crisis, pray. In crisis, pull aside and pray. And that's what Jesus did. And that should be our takeaway. He did this at other times too when he was calling the 12 disciples. Remember what he, he went away all night, prayed all night long. That's what he did. Our first tendency is, and when I'm in a crisis, my first tendency is what? Fix it. <laughs> fix it. Or, or, or help you get, get somebody who can fix it, right? That, and, I, and I'm not saying that God says that we shouldn't try to find someone to help us or try to fix crisis in our life. I'm not saying. He is not saying sit back and do nothing. But I am saying that the takeaway from this is that Jesus in his crisis I mean, he, he retreated and went to talk to God about this. He went to tell God about his fear. I'm going to say his fear. His fear, his anguish, his grief. I mean, he went to talk to God about that. So here's what you do when you're afraid and you're grieving or just your world is collapsing around you. Here's what you do. Take a walk in the woods by yourself. Talk to God about it. Sit by the river, sit by the river and just and, and, and let the waters flow by and, or the creek and talk to God about it. Tell God your fears. Ask God what you want. Pour out your heart to God. Call on him. He's always near. He's always available. If there's a takeaway for you and me today, it's this. Cry out to God in your time of crisis, your time of pain. Here's the second takeaway. Be persistent in your prayers. God desires and expects us to communicate our desires, our dreams, our hopes. He wants to hear all of that from us, right? He hears and he cares. And how God determines to answer, I've already told you, it's an enigma to me. I do not understand it. And I know there's Christians that want to say, this is how you always get a yes answer. And you know, you do this or you do that or whatever. I, I just, it's an enigma to me how we get yes answers and no answers. I, sometimes I'm not even sure it's about the yes answer and no. Although God tells me to ask him for what I desire, right? But the one thing that Jesus illustrated for me anyway and for us in, is persistence in prayer. Don't you see it? Three different times. Three, let's just assume it's three hours. 
Because the first time was definitely an hour. He says, after an hour, couldn't you stay up with me for an hour? So he goes and he asks, but then he comes back. He persists three times, and evidently three times the answer is no. And how he knew that the third time the no was firm, it was a firm no the third time. I mean, how did he know? Did, did the first two times he, he just, you know, like sometimes we just don't know? And so he didn't know. And the third time God spoke to his heart and said, it's a no. I'm not, I'm not changing the plan. This is what we're going to do. Or did he hear the guys coming up the hill in the distance? And he goes, well, it's definitely a no because here they come, you know. How did he know it was a firm no? I, I don't know how he knew it was a firm no. But the thing that I want you to see is, and I want to encourage you, is that we should persevere in prayer and not give up until it's a firm no. So we got Paul, his example. Remember that? Three times. God, whatever this thorn in the flesh was for him, God, take it away, take it away. And he said, God kept telling me, you know, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And eventually Paul said, it's a firm no. It's a firm no. I'm not going to keep answering. Here's my point. Until you get a hard no, until you get a firm no, you just keep persevering and keep asking God and keep, keep praying because that's what Jesus modeled for you and me. Here's a third takeaway uh, on the road to the resurrection that led through the garden. Here's the third takeaway. And I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this, actually. Pray yearning for God to do in your life whatever he thinks is best. What, whatever you ask him, pray saying, God, but I want to do what you want me to do. I, I want to be faithful to you in whatever you allow, whatever you bring about, whatever, whatever the answer is, God, I want to be faithful to you. And there, there's how I wrote it. It's on the screen behind me for the fill in the blank. But y'all follow what I just said? That's the third takeaway. And, and if, if that's not the biggest lesson of the garden, I'm mistaken, but I think it is. That's the biggest lesson of the garden. That what God, what Jesus modeled for us is what God desires of me. He wants me to seek him, to bring my dreams, my desires, my goals, but the things that I want, I should be praying and asking him. But I should also be saying, God, but I want, I want in my life what you want for me. And I want to trust you with, with that. Whatever, whatever is coming my way, you know it. You're at least allowing it, if not causing it. So God, I want to trust you in that. And, I, and I, want to, I want to love you and trust you in the middle of that. So often I've prayed, God, I don't want to do this. Or God, I want to do that. Or God, I want to go here. Or God, I don't want to go there. And again, if I'm honest, there is never this, but you know, hey, but if you don't want that, I'm really usually just praying, God, I don't care what you want. This is what I want. And I think Jesus is saying to us, pray, share your crest with God, pour out your heart to God. I mean, if you're, if you're grieving and you're hurting and you're pain because of what's going on, pour that out to God, but ask God to help you. Or, and, and I'm asking you to, I mean, I believe he's given us what we need here to be able to say, God, I love you more than anything. And God, I'm going to say, I'm going to trust you in whatever your answer is to my request, whatever you say. At the end of the garden, there was no other way. There was, there was you know, again, did Jesus hear an audible no? Was it his arrest? I, I don't know. Sometimes it's pretty clear in our hearts that it's a no, isn't it? Sometimes we just know it's a hard no. It just becomes clear to us, this is a hard no. God's not answering 
that request for me. God's not answering that for me. And then when that comes, when, when it's a hard no and you know it's a hard no, then get up, be determined. Walk in faithfulness to God, just like Jesus did. Submit to his will, follow him, and yes, be thankful to him. Be thankful to him in the midst of it all. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.